Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on Sirius XM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. Joining us, he's back. Last time he was here, we were talking about all of the museums. And I never thought about it when I went to the museums that all of the black African art was stolen. I never thought about it till I saw Black Panther. And Killmugger came in, took that mask. It was like, give me that back. And I was like, oh, and then I talked to you. Then I talked to you, Dr. Chica. Chica. And it became clear that it's time for us to reclaim all of that. And that's part of your work. And you out here in these streets doing this. Let me welcome Princeton University professor, program in Africa, Africa studies director as well. Let me welcome back Dr. Chika Okeke Agulu. Welcome. Look, he wants all his applause. He ain't going to say a word to the last clap. Let him have it, Smith. Okay. <laughs> hey, Dr. Chica. Hi. All right. So you have a new book, which we're going to get to in a, in a minute. Um, and you also uh, have recovered or are responsible for recovering. More looted Benin bronzes will return. Two of Nigeria's looted Benin bronzes. Am I saying that Benin? Is it Benin? Yes. Benin, yes. Benin bronzes were returned to Nigeria. How significant is this? How important is it? And how difficult was this? Um, it's it's fantastic news. Um, but we've only just started. Um, it's it's only uh, if you will, an appetizer, right? In what is supposed to be a vast dinner, right? Uh, and, and so we've only just begun, um, in part because the big time uh, keepers of these loots have not, you know, uh, begun to engage with these questions. So until we get to the big boys, um, there's no resting, okay. uh, you know, on, on this issue. Let's get to the big boys here. Who are the most yeah. egregious and, and give us the history of how they uh, got, because again, I love going to museums. We're about to start mm -hmm. a whole museum tour, hopefully mm -hmm. this summer with Dr. Greg Carr. We're going to go to different museums in America. Mm -hmm. uh, but tell us about the history and the biggest, the big boys, the, the biggest yeah. egregious thieves, yeah. most egregious yeah. thieves. Um, so in 1897, as this story goes, uh, history very well documented, perhaps the most well-documented state heist uh, in the history of mankind. Uh, so in 1897, British soldiers um, invaded the kingdom of Benin, uh, burned down the palace of the Oba of Benin and looted thousands of treasures uh, from the palace, destroyed the city, sent the Oba in exile, um, and brought to an end a 700, 800-year-old dynasty that had given them so much trouble uh, when they wanted to um, basically take over uh, commercial activity in what was then the Southern uh, Nigerian uh, territory. And so a uh, part of the problem with that enterprise was that the British, you know, the, the king at the time was a bit hesitant. The government was not too sold on 
this invasion, apparently to uh, avenge the death of maybe six or seven uh, British um, personnel that had entered the kingdom, by the way, after they were told they were not invited. They were not allowed uh, to enter the kingdom. It was a sacred month. Uh, but of course, trust the European bravado um, and uh, sense of entitlement, they went ahead anyway, uh, got ambushed, uh, and in the process, you know, a few of them were killed, others returned home, and that became a ruse for the British government to do what they had been hoping to be able to do, which was to, as they used to say, pacify the kingdom of Benin. And so they, they uh, schemed this as uh, an enterprise, a reprisal, uh, a punitive expedition against the Obar of Benin. Well, uh, at that point, in fact, the British government knew that this was going to be a serious affair to carry out a total invasion of the kingdom. But they were informed that there were lots of treasures in the palace of the Obar of Benin that, if sold, could help defray the cost of the invasion, which, of course, reminds us of Iraq and oil and all of that and all the arguments about invasion of Iraq, of Iraq uh, a, few, uh, a few years back. But this was, again, the, the argument that, that was made, and they got the sanction to go ahead with the invasion. And so they knew what they were going for, to retrieve these treasures and sell them off to defray some of the costs of the, the invasion, which, of course, gave them an entire territory of southern Nigeria as a colonial territory. And so on the end of this campaign, uh, in the spring of 18, winter and spring of 1897, all these treasures, at least most of them, uh, were returned back to England, handed over to the state that then gave a couple of hundreds of them to the British Museum and sold out the rest. Then, of course, there are soldiers of fortune that joined in that campaign, carted away their own private loots that they sold up in auctions uh, during the first uh, half of the 20th century, kept some for their families and their uh, pro uh, progeny. Those then began to circulate. From these initial auctions, uh, they began to enter into private collections and public collections. The Germans knew the value of these objects right away. And so they um, rallied around uh, one of their most famous museologists and the Austrians, made sure he had enough money to buy up as much of these treasures as he could for German museums. And so the Ethnological Museum in, in Berlin, which is now moving on to this fancy new museum, the Humboldt Forum, has hundreds, nearly a thousand of these uh, bronzes. Well, they are called bronzes. Technically, they are brass works and ivory and so forth. They have thousands in Germany, in the British Museum, where, of course, the Killmonger um, uh, episode in Black Panther was filmed. They have hundreds of these, nearly a thousand, 700, 800 of them over to the United States where they crossed the Atlantic 
uh, came to the United States through the same processes, you know, rich people and wealthy museums buying up this stuff. The, um, the Metropolitan Museum in New York is, a, is one of the big boys in the United States. The Field Museum in Chicago, the National Museum of African-American uh, Art in Washington, DC, the Smithsonian, um, the, uh, the, the Art Institute of Boston, the, and several others that have quite a few of these things. And mind you, the last time some of these things came into the market, which is quite a, a long time ago, uh, just one of those heads sold for like $12 million. Wow. And so you're talking about hundreds of these, just imagine how much treasure that was taken from this palace. Some figures uh, put them at about 7,000 objects that were taken from the palace. Now, the, the unfortunate thing is that it wasn't just that these were very precious um, objects of you know, precious metal and so forth, but these were especially the, uh, the wall reliefs that decorated the, the, the royal hall. Uh, the, the prime hall in the palace, uh, these reliefs were used to decorate the walls of the palace, but they were also the archives of the kingdom. They were not just art objects. They were, they constituted the, the historical library of the Benin kingdom. And so um, stealing them away from the kingdom caused uh, cultural and existential crisis for the people of Benin because the documents of their history had been looted almost as if you know they came and looted uh, the Library of Congress or something like you might imagine what would happen to the United States without uh, its uh, archives and and histories so this was what we're talking about that these institutions, um, have refused to even enter into negotiation uh, about the restitution of these objects for decades. After 1960, when 18 African countries uh, won their independence, some of these countries began to ask for the return of the looted uh, artifacts uh, that were in Europe and American collections. But of course, as we now know, uh, in the last three years, there's been, you know, uptick in both the push for restitution and repatriation of these objects and some fundamental shift on the part of some of these institutions, no small thanks to the Black Lives Matter movement in its international uh, phase that put pressure on institutions that had benefited tremendously from uh, the colonial looting, right, of the rest of the world. And so what we now have is a moment where you have some shift on the part of these institutions and increasing an unrelenting pressure on some of us by some of us who are very much engaged with these questions and issues. I'm gonna, um, we're talking with Dr. Chika Okeke Agulu. I'm gonna ask you to be a little more pithy. It's a live show. We want to get more mm -hmm. questions in. We want to get more answers in. We got calls and all. Like, let's let's go. Shavar's mm -hmm. here. He's got questions as well. And you talking about the erasure of culture first attacking people's archives is 
400 years of the black experience, the erasure of everything. So we can really relate to that and how damaging that can be is why we got to reclaim that. Uh, but we're here. The number is 866-801-8255. Go ahead, Shabar. Yeah, so quickly, I'd love to hear, Doctor, uh, you speak to the challenges of doing this work in terms of returning um, African artifacts into their rightly place. We're in a context in which, one, there's a lot of willful denial about the realities of uh, race-based theft, whether it's of human beings, let alone of, arch of artifacts. And related to that, uh, there's a lot of, uh, there, there's not much of a willingness to engage in reparations talk. Because um, that's fundamentally what you're talking about. Let's return back to those from whom precious resources were stolen and give them back. So yeah. talk about the challenges of this work in that context. Well, it's not an easy task. On, on the one hand, these institutions are holding to these treasures, and that's what they do. They, they, they hold and um, uh, hoard treasures that's what museums do uh, for the most part and so insofar as they see these objects as part of what constitutes their identity they are not willing to give them up that's on that's on the part of the institutions but there's the bigger question that you refer to Shaba, which is the states and the nations that own these museums and institutions they are leery and worried about making such moves because that would let the doors open, right? Then you start talking about the broader questions of reparation, not just art objects, but you know the debt owed to black people, right? Um, in in the in, in the United States and in the New World um, at the end of uh, the the period of enslavement, right? And so, to the extent that let's say the United States government is unwilling right, to enter into any serious debate about the debts that it owes Black people in the United States, you can then see how that can then provide a basis for, well, yes, at once we might as well not even get into those conversations um, uh, as well. And that's why if you go to England, you now see that there's a certain white nationalism that is pushing against repatriation and restitution of art objects. Right, so we can't but see a connection between the depredations of colonization and enslavement of black peoples and these questions about restitution and repatriation of art objects. 866-801-8255. We're talking with Dr. Chika, Chika Okeke Agulu. Uh, you're, you're Ghanaian by birth? Nigerian. Nigerian, okay. Yes. I apologize. That's right. Yeah, I do remember we're that gonna now. Because we going to win the Jalof War, so I'm, you know, no. Nigerian. <laughs> yeah, but just like, just like the the love of yourself and your culture, you have a book that celebrates an, a Ghanaian artist, which is why you know what I'm saying. Like, yes, there's no separation. So you you have a book, El Anatsui, El Anatsui, which is the reinvention of sculpture, celebrating this artist, El Anatsui. Tell us about him. Tell us about what's in this book and sure. why it's so important. Uh, Ella Natsui is probably the best known uh, black artist working in the international scene today. Um, he was for Wait, the longest- in the, in the art circle? Cause I'm, I'm today years old. And this book comes out in May, by the way, May 24th. So you can pre-order it. We sent out a link on SiriusXM, SXM, Urban View. Is he known in the art world? Because he- <laughs> 
Yes, yes, okay. that, that's right. In the, in the global art world, uh, he is a name that you cannot avoid in the textbooks, in art history, and, and, and so forth. Um, so he is Ghanaian, as you rightly pointed out, um, but he has lived in Nigeria uh, since 1975. So he, he's as well Nigerian uh, by residence. Um, he was, uh, for full disclosure, my teacher in, in art school years back when I was still practicing as an artist. So that's uh, the, the immediate connection, but I have been a student of his work since and have published widely in his, uh, on his work. Ella Natsui is a sculptor. Um, he is best known for the bottle cap uh, sculptures that he makes out of liquor bottles. Um, these Im incredible, resplendent, beautiful, powerful sculptures, uh, wall sculptures that he is very well known all over the world. Every serious museum tries to acquire work by Ellen Atsui. And so he represents um, the best um, that uh, Black African artists can offer in this day and age. And in other words, signals, right? The significant contribution of um, artists of Black heritage to what we think of, of as sculpture, right? Because when we talk about painting, sculpture, music, we tend to think about the Greco-Roman tradition and the European white folks and so forth. What we have today is a generation of artists, African-American artists, um, African artists that are performing at the very top of the field. And so the task of people like me as a scholar is to make sure the world understands that, right? Is to um, seize the platform to self-narrate, to show why artists of African African uh, descent are among the most significant uh, uh, producers of, of art and culture in this day and age. Curious on that, Doc, what can we, what can the listeners of the show do to support that? Um, we know oftentimes uh, investing in art isn't something that for too many black people is not at the top of our list. Um, we know like many of our artists, not only in this space, but in music and other areas um, that they often have to depend on white consumers and we'll, we'll take their investment, of course. But I'd yeah. love for you to talk about what can we who are listening to this show this afternoon do to support uh, the work you just described? Um, well, the, there's a very uh, direct reason to pay attention to this that um, art, of course, is about uh, culture. It's about history. It's about self-narration. Uh, it's about uh, collective identities and self-affirmation. It's all of that. But we also know that it's one of the most serious um, uh, tools for investment. Um, in other words, uh, there's a reason why some of the richest people are also some of the biggest collectors, art collectors, mm. everywhere you go. Um, uh, you know, apart from the fact that it's part of an elite culture and so forth, it's also that these are very powerful um, uh, financial uh, resources. And but, but, but let, me, let me just jump in, because as you were talking, I was thinking about the looting. And I remember my dad traveled to Ghana and he was like, he was in this village and this king was sitting on a block of gold 
and people were hungry and he was like, why don't you sell the gold? And he was like, well, the gold is only worth what they're willing to pay me for. Um, um, racism sets the, the market. Racism sets the value. Racism sets the, 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 the structure. So they tell us that a Fabergé egg is worth this, that Picasso's worth that, that Van Gogh's worth this, but your art may not be worth that because we're setting the table for value. We, we determine who's valuable and who's not. We determine what's valuable and what's not. So while you're saying this, Dr. Uh, Chica, I'm still, I'm thinking we're still going through a European lens for value. Um, well, yes, I know. Uh, there's a reason, uh, a guy born in Southeastern Nigeria, um, in a, you know, that attended a primary school that didn't have a roof. Um, is today um, a well-thought-of professor at Princeton in the United States um, and setting the tone of conversation about so many things in the art world. And I'm not alone. There are so many African-American artists today that are commanding uh, as much, if not more, than their white counterparts in the art market. There are African-American curators and writers and critics that are supporting this work. And in fact, there are African-American collectors. Right? I don't want to start uh, uh, you know, putting out the names there, but serious collectors of this work. Uh, but to the extent that there are more um, that are invested in making sure that it's not just that um, our artists are producing work, but that uh, African-American and African collectors are also custodians of this, of this material, of this work. Because what it means is that they can, in some future time, uh, gift these uh, collections to Black uh, colleges and their galleries. That had happened in another generation. And that's why at Fisk University, for instance, they have some of the best collections of modern African artists outside of the African mm -hmm. continent. And it's at Fisk University, right? So th there are reasons why um, more African-American and African collectors and supporters of us should uh, join the fray. Um, because if for so long, the narrative had been decided and structured by white folks, well, there, there are enough Black people now to begin to change that structure and system, and there's no reason to stop. So we have the power. We have the power. We, we just have to know it. Uh, Alu in Chicago. Dr. Chika is here, 866-801-8255. Shavar Jeffries. Shavar Jeffries is here as well. Alu, Chicago, welcome to the Karen Hunter Show. Hi. Hi, Karen. Uh, thanks for taking my call, and uh, hello to uh, Dr. Chika. So th there's a, a bigger question here, which uh, I'm glad that I actually tune in to uh, listen to all this information. I went to elementary school, high school, even my A-levels in Nigeria before I moved here in 1987. And this is all news to me. So I'm just wondering why this was never, I never learned this. So is there a way now where this can be embedded in the history learning in Nigeria, because all I learned while I was there was uh, British history. I never learned any of this. So is there a reason why, and is there, is there a way where this can actually be part of uh, the learning process in Nigeria and other places? 
Awesome question. Thank you, Alu. Yes. Drive safely. Dr. Chika. Yes. Uh, Why didn't you, you learn so this? Why didn't you learn this in Nigeria? Why didn't we learn this in school? Oh, you learned it in Nigeria. Oh, so he went to the wrong school? Is that what you're saying? Alu didn't go to the right school? Well, not necessarily. So here's the thing. Um, when I went to primary and secondary school in Nigeria, there used to be history courses taught in primary and secondary school. I understand that at some point, and that is not unconnected to the IMF and the World Bank's intervention in African economies in the early 1980s and mid uh, to mid 1980s, when they imposed structural adjustments and austerity measures um, that made or forced these governments to retrench um, uh, and to stop funding education in the way that they did in the post-independence period because they were thought of as wasteful. And part of the austerity measures meant the devastation of education in much of Africa. This is part of a history that we don't quite appreciate um, enough of. And that's in fact the reason for what was called the brain drain that made people like me leave the University of Nigeria and Soka, where I taught as a 22-year, 23-year-old to leave uh, Nigeria. So there's, there's, um, uh, there's an event or series of events that happened across Africa during the 1980s that impoverished the educational system. And one of the rhetorics that then emerged during this period is that science is the only way, math and science. And so courses in history went out the door mm. because that's not part of this new age thinking about technology and science. Well, we have work to do. Uh, we are replanting the seeds of knowledge here. I'm pr appreciative that you're out there. Come back when your book comes out so we can get a copy of it and have uh, giveaways and stuff. Dr. Chika, I appreciate you. Dr. Chika Okeke Agulu, you can follow him at Chika A, uh, Chika Okeke, O-K-E-K-E-Agulu, A-G-U-L-U on the Twitter's. Hey, this is Karen Hunter. You can listen to The Karen Hunter Show live every Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. East on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.